because we are having communion this morning. Uh, you did not receive a sermon note sheet because we intentionally did not provide a note sheet. And, uh, but uh, if you want to use your Bible or electronic device, we're going to be looking at <coughs> two passages of Scripture. And uh, gentlemen to my left, Mr. Nate Brown, is uh, going to read them for us. And um, if you've not met Nate, I hope you will. Uh, he and his wife, Tanya, a very faithful part of our church, adorable daughter, Olivia, who's in fourth grade. His mother, Janice, uh, is also very faithful, and uh, we're, we appreciate them very much. So, uh, Nate, would you go ahead and would you read for us the scripture? First, I'm reading through from John 12, verses 1 through 8. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leopard, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for the burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Thank you, Nate. Nate has just read from two gospel accounts, one account from John, and then second, one account from Mark. And those accounts commented on the same exact historical occurrence, and that was a woman that anointed Jesus with expensive perfume. Notice there were similarities between those accounts, but there were also differences. As an example, in Mark's gospel, the woman is anonymous. She isn't identified. But in John's gospel, she is named. And sometimes this confuses people. If God is the ultimate author of all Scripture, and He is, then why aren't these gospel accounts identical? Why are there these differences between them? Let me answer that question. Simon Greenleaf was a famous U.S. attorney. In 1846, he became the Dane Professor of Law at Harvard University. 
He was one of the phys uh, primary contributors to the development of Harvard Law School, and he retired as Professor Emeritus. His work called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence is considered a classic in American jurisprudence. Simon Greenleaf was considered an expert on what constitutes reliable evidence in a court of law. He was also a devout Christian. So he examined the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from a legal perspective. <clears throat> Greenleaf noticed that sometimes the eyewitness accounts mentioned <clears throat> in the four Gospels <clears throat> would agree with one another, but each Gospel writer of those accounts would choose to add or omit details that were different from the other Gospel accounts. Greenleaf argued those types of differences are typical of reliable independent sources that could be accepted in a court of law as strong evidence. The differences were a good and necessary thing, according to Simon Greenleaf, because if the gospel accounts contained exactly the same information with the same exact details, written from the same perspective, it would indicate collusion. It would indicate that there was collaboration between the different authors, meaning at some point those gospel writers would have gotten together to, quote, get their story straight in order to make their writing more credible. According to Greenleaf, the differences between the gospel accounts were essential and were necessary to prove that there was no collusion. There was no collaboration between them because those differences meant each gospel author uh, wrote independently of the other writers. The four gospel accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John agree in their information but differ in their perspectives and differ in the amount of detail that is mentioned, and differ in which events were recorded and which events were omitted. And all of that, all of that indicate that the historical record that we have of Jesus as presented in the Gospels would be acceptable in a courtroom as factual and reliable evidence. Three of the four Gospels cite an account of a woman anointing Jesus with a flask of expensive perfume. That account is found in Matthew 26. We have not read that account. And then the accounts that were just read uh, are Mark 14 and John 12. I should mention that Luke 7 verses 36 through 50 also record a similar account where a woman anoints Jesus. But the woman in that account is not the same woman that is in the other three accounts. That woman was a prostitute. And the woman in the other three accounts wasn't a prostitute. And she was a close friend of Jesus named Mary. Another reason the Gospels record the same thing but are sometimes different from one another is because different Gospel authors add different details that the other Gospel accounts don't and do so in order to get a more complete picture of the narrative. It's as if each gospel author adds another piece of the puzzle until the puzzle is complete. And that's the case here. 
Let's reread John's account, first starting at verse 1. This anointing of Jesus happened just before Passion Week. Passion Week also called Holy Week. Passion Week was from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And so this happened on Saturday, just before Palm Sunday. John 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. The most well-known resident from this small village east of Jerusalem called Bethany was a man named Lazarus. Lazarus was one of Jesus' closest friends. And Jesus sometimes would actually stay at Lazarus' home. The reason Lazarus was so well known was because Jesus had just resurrected him from the dead. And that resurrection caught public attention because that just doesn't happen. Bethany is still recognized as the location where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus also had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Notice John 12, verse 2. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now, don't misunderstand. As the parallel account from Mark 14 identifies exactly where this happened. And we're going to be reading throughout this message, reading between John's account and Mark's account, so that we can put this all together. Uh, Mark 14, verse 3, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table. So this didn't happen at Lazarus' house, a house Jesus was accustomed to going to, his friend, but it didn't happen there. It happened at the house of Simon the leper. To add some clarification to this account, Simon was the former leper. Simon was an ex-leper. Because if Simon still had that contagious disease, then he wouldn't have even been permitted to be inside this village. Because lepers were expelled from their families and were forced to exist outside villages and cities in leper colonies. Lepers weren't permitted to have close social interaction with other people because it was so contagious. Remember, someone's leprous condition was considered incurable. So it is almost certain that Jesus had cured Simon of his disease. Or how else could he have been cured? So this invitation to Jesus, this inviting Jesus into his home to eat a meal, could have been considered an act of gratitude from Simon to Jesus for healing him from that disease. But although it's Simon's house, Jesus' friends Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were also there as guests. And there could have been other guests in addition to them. Notice what happened. This is from John 12, verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Spikenard was an expensive ancient perfume. This was an oil extracted from a rare herb called nard, N-A-R-D, nard. Nard was grown in northern India. It was so expensive because, one, it was so rare, 
And second, it had to be transported from that distant location to Israel on camels. So the transportation costs also inflated the cost of the perfume. This was an extremely valuable commodity. And notice she had a pound of this perfume. A Roman pound was equivalent to modern 12 ounces. This was an expensive amount of perfume. Mark's account adds some additional information. Notice Mark 14, verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. That perfume was kept in an alabaster flask. Alabaster was a white translucent stone that was carved out so that it could contain someone's perfume. So it was probably transported those hundreds of miles in that flask. Most often a flask that contained perfume had a, a long neck from where a small, small opening would permit the perfume to come out in small drops. That slow release of the perfume, though, wasn't acceptable to Mary. Notice, she broke the flask so she could pour out the entire contents of that container on Jesus. She poured out so much of that aromatic contents that the aroma filled the entire room. The aroma saturated the entire room where these people were. Verse 5 tells us that the value of this flask of perfume could be sold for 300 denarii. Now, one denarius would equal an average day wages for an average laborer. So 300 denarii would equal 300 workdays wages, which is more than a total year's income. It's possible Mary had saved an entire lifetime in order to purchase something of this value. She f sacrificed literally her greatest and most prized possession. Some people now invest in spocks, stocks and bonds. Some people invest in precious metals. She invested in expensive perfume. Notice that according to verse to John 12 verse 3, Mary used her hair to wipe the perfume she had poured on his feet. Now that was a cultural no-no. Mary's hair was long, we assume, probably tied back on her head, but she needed to loosen it in order for it to hang down so as she bent down she could wipe Jesus' feet. But that was a radical thing for a woman to do in the presence of Jewish men. And in wiping his feet, she invariably touched his feet. And Jewish rabbis, rabbi meaning teacher, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, Jewish rabbis did not permit single women to caress their feet. But notice, Jesus didn't resist her. Jesus permitted this action because he understood her heart. He understood this was an act of sacrificial worship on the part of Mary. There's a lesson here. We should also learn, as Jesus did, to be more understanding instead of being so quick to judge and condemn someone else. Mary didn't care about cultural norms. 
And she didn't care about what others thought about her actions because Mary's entire focus was on demonstrating her intense love for Jesus. John 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, don't misunderstand, not Simon the leper's son, that's where this meal is happening. No, this is another Simon, the father of Judas Iscariot. Just imagine being the parents of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, there are two extreme personalities in this encounter. The first extreme and main character is Mary. And the second and opposite extreme was Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus. Both personalities represent extremes. John 12, verse 5. Judas said to Jesus and the others, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, no, 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 but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Remember, Judas was the ultimate con man. He was the ultimate deceiver. He conned the rest of those disciples into giving him their money for safekeeping. He had the money box. He was the treasurer of the group. The other disciples actually trusted him to be responsible for their money. Judas wanted the perfume to be sold, not so that the money from the sale of that perfume could be donated to the poor. That's a pious excuse. But he wanted the perfume sold so the money from the sale of that perfume could be put into the disciples' money box so that he could steal it at some point. Judas didn't care about the poor. He was a thief, and he consistently stole money from the disciples' treasury, and no one suspected him. But notice that Judas's bad attitude was contagious. Bad attitudes are contagious. Mark 14, verse 4. But there were some, some means more than one, some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fra fragrant oil wasted? We don't know who those some were, these some others who were upset, as Judas was, because we aren't told who these men were. But some other disciples also joined Judas in criticizing what Mary had done. But remember, Judas was the primary instigator and he encouraged that. John 12, verse 7. But Jesus said, let her alone. Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Jesus actually said, she did a good thing. Mark 14, verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Jesus, Jesus told Judas and the others who were critical to stop, just stop condemning Mary. Stop bagging on Mary. Let her alone. And then notice Jesus didn't condemn Mary for doing what she did, but instead he commended her for doing what she did. He said, she has done a good work for me. She has kept this for the day of my burial. At that time, 
People to be buried were covered in spices and perfumes. Perfumes were used to lessen the stench of a dead corpse since there was no embalming fluid at that time. So this was a pre-burial act and anointing on the part of Mary. She knew she wouldn't be, able to, wouldn't be permitted to participate in the actual burial itself. That would be Nicodemus and Joseph from Arimathea who would receive permission to have the body of Jesus and prepared him to be buried and then actually buried him. So don't miss this. She anointed Jesus before he died in a symbolic sense in anticipation of his death. And this morning, through the means of communion, in a symbolic sense, we are remembering his death some 20 centuries after he died. John 12, verse 8. Jesus said, For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Those of us that are older remember the war on poverty. The war on poverty was the name assigned to legislation. President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced during his State of the Union address on January 8, 1964. That speech resulted in Congress passing the Economic Opportunity Act, which established the Office of Economic Opportunity to administer the local applications of federal funds targeted against poverty. The problem is that 59 years and trillions of dollars spent, this so-called war on poverty has only succeeded in creating a welfare state. It hasn't eliminated poverty because big government has never been the solution to this nation's problems. This current administration and Congress, including both Democrats and Republicans, together to date in just over 24 months, have spent $12 trillion. I'm not Dave Ramsey, but I'm smart enough to know that that sort of spending is obscene, irresponsible, and unsustainable. We should be ashamed. Economist Milton Freeman argued that the best means to fighting poverty was not through government spending, but through economic growth. And I agree. It is a given, a given, that as individuals and as a congregation, we should be committed to helping the underprivileged. But according to this, no matter what we do, according to Jesus, there will always be a poor class of people. There will always be people who need our assistance. Mark 14, verse 7, Jesus said, For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Verse 9, assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. If we visit cemeteries, and sometimes I visit older cemeteries, I want to read the dates on the tombstones and the epitaphs. I, I find it interesting. And if we visit a cemetery and read the tombstones, most will have on the marker the date that someone was born, and then a dash, and then the date that person died. 
As an example, John Doe, a fictitious person, born January 16, 1942, dash, died September 13, 2003. Now, the most important part isn't the dates, but the dash. That dash represents what someone did with his allotted time on this earth. That dash represents what we did from the moment we were born until the moment we died. And remember, the length of someone's life isn't as important as the legacy that person leaves behind. Notice this definition. Someone's personal legacy is someone's lasting impression on succeeding generations. Someone's personal legacy is someone's lasting impressions on succeeding generations. See, a legacy is something that will outlive us. This woman named Mary left behind a legacy. And that legacy was that as an act of love and worship and devotion, she anointed Jesus with an expensive perfume. And Jesus, wherever the gospel is preached and her name is mentioned, that's going to be brought up as a memorial to her. Judas Iscariot also left behind a legacy. The impression he left behind was that he betrayed Jesus, Yeshua, the promised Messiah, and the Savior. Judas committed the ultimate crime. That was his legacy. Jonathan Edwards, born 1703, died 1758. I should add, he died from an allergic reaction to a smallpox inoculation at age 54. Medicine was more primitive then. Edwards had learned Latin, Hebrew, and Greek as a pre-teenager and entered Yale College at age 12. As an adult, he became a Puritan philosophical theologian. He is considered, according to historians, one of the greatest thinkers and most brilliant minds this nation has ever seen. He was a critical participant in the New England colony's profound revivalist movement known as the First Great Spiritual Awakening. Four personalities contributed to the First Great Awakening. Evangelist John Wesley, founder of Methodism, his brother and hymnist, Charles Wesley, prolific evangelist George Whitfield, and then pastor, theologian, and author Jonathan Edwards. Edwards also preached what some consider the most famous sermon in modern times called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon is still being studied in high school English literature classes. Before his death, Edwards served as president of the College of New Jersey, which would become Princeton University. He was also an apologist as he wrote an extensive Christian response to the claims of the Enlightenment. Now, I don't believe in covering up and concealing the sins of some of the earliest members of this nation. I'm not a historical revisionist. In a 1741 pamphlet, Edwards defended enslaving people who were debtors enslaving people who are war captives or keeping in slavery people who were born enslaved. He categorically rejected the Atlanta, Atlantic slave trade, but he made exceptions for that. Edwards was mistaken. 
He should have rejected all forms of the slave trade because there is no justification for the evilness of owning another human being. Now, some argue from the moral relativist perspective that Edwards was just a man of his time period, and at that time, owning slaves was a common and acceptable practice. I'm sorry, that's a flawed argument. Do we excuse abortion because abortion is a common and acceptable societal practice? No, we don't. Edwards and Wesley were contemporaries. Both men were born in 1703. Although Edwards died at age 54, Wesley outlasted him and died at age 87. Over time, Wesley developed a different perspective on the subject. It seems reasonable to assume had Edwards lived longer, he would have done the same. But the last letter that Reverend Wesley wrote just before he died in 1791 was to Wilbur, William Wilberforce in England. Wilberforce might sound familiar. He was an evangelical Christian and a member of the British Parliament, and he was a ferocious opponent of slavery. Wilberforce had exhausted himself in an attempt to get abolition laws agreed to in Parliament. In that letter, that last piece of correspondence from John Wesley, Wesley called slavery an execrable villainy, and he urged Wilberforce to continue on in the fight. He said this, and I'm quoting him from that letter, Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might until even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. That was Wesley's attitude about the slave trade. Wilberforce listened to those comments. He continued to fight. And it's interesting that England abolished the institution of slavery just three days before Wilberforce died. In 1833, slavery was abolished in England and in all British colonies. The 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, wasn't added to the U.S. Constitution until 1865. So as a nation, we relate to the dance because numerous countries banned slavery before we did. But remember, as regretful as that is, it's better to be late than never. Jonathan Edwards had 11 children. I'm not sure the rationale for that, but he did. <laughs> and he made a serious, consecrated, spiritual investment in each one of them as did Mrs. Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was himself a son of a pastor. But notice how his legacy affected succeeding generations from him. The impression he had on him and how lasting it was. An educator named A.E. Winship studied some 1,400 descendants from Jonathan Edwards. These are some of the results from those studies. Listen carefully. Of those 1,400 descendants, 285 descendants were college graduates. 100 were clergymen and ministers. 100 were attorneys. One was a dean of a law school. 80 held public office. 66 were physicians. One was dean of a medical school. 65 were professors in colleges and universities. 30 were judges. 13 were college presidents. Three were mayors of large cities. Three were state governors. Three were United States senators. 
One was controller of the United States Treasury. One was vice president of the United States. And practically none of his descendants were lawbreakers. Compare that genealogical lineup to that from a man named Max Juke. Actually, Max Juke was a fictitious name so as to conceal his true identification. This Max was from New York during the same time period as Jonathan Edwards, although Edwards was from Connecticut. Some accuse Max Juke of being an atheist, but we can't substantiate that. We aren't certain about that. But we do know that he was a hard drinker, and there is no historical evidence that he ever became a Christian. In 1877, a sociologist named Richard L. Dungale studied 1,200 of his descendants. And these are some of the results from those studies. Of those 1,200 descendants, 300 of them died a premature death. 440 of them were addicted to alcohol. 310 were paupers. 190 were prostitutes. 60 were thieves. 7 were murderers and 150 were other convicts. The difference between these contrasting legacies and these genealogical lists, the differences are profound. Were there hereditary and environmental factors that contributed to this mass dysfunction and sin in the Jukes? Probably. But it's hard to imagine that there wasn't a missing spiritual component at some points throughout those generations. Remember after Moses died and he died a premature death, his successor Joshua brought the Israelites into the promised land. He and his armies conquered the pagan societies and cities and then established themselves in the land. Before he died, Joshua brought the people together and challenged them to recommit themselves to the one and true God. He commanded them to choose. He forced them to decide to serve the false gods of the Canaanites or to serve Yahweh, the true God. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Verse 15, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then Joshua announced to the people, but as for me and my house, notice Joshua felt that as the husband and father of his household, he was responsible for the spiritual condition of his household. He felt he was responsible for his household. And men, we are also responsible. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not as for me and my house, we will dabble in this thing called Christianity. Not as for me and my house, we will play it at serving God. No, we will, he's emphatic, serve the Lord. 
I contend that a household committed to serving the Lord has a greater chance, meaning has a higher probability of reproducing itself in succeeding generations of productive, principled, lawful, and high-quality people that love God and love others. And gentlemen, it starts with each of us. The big idea from this narrative about Mary is found in Mark 14, verse 8, where Jesus said to those men around him that had witnessed this act, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. Understand, that's all that God requires from us. God created each of us to be different from everyone else. We are unique. We're the same as Nevada license plates. We're the same as snowflakes. No two of us are the same. Not even identical twins are exactly identical. I married a mirror image identical twin. And she was seriously different than her sister. We have different intelligent quotients. Different educational backgrounds. Different strengths, different weaknesses, different talents, different skill sets, different spiritual gifts, different temperaments, different life experiences, and on and on and on. So God doesn't expect the same output from each of us. God didn't create each of us to have the exact same potential. What God requires from each of us is that we do what we can do. What we can do could be more than what someone else can do. What we can do could be less than what someone else can do. But that doesn't matter. God evaluates us on what we can do. The problem is, most of us underestimate what we can do. Most of us are capable of doing more than we are doing. In relation to spiritual potential, most of us are underachievers and not overachievers, including me. I've said this often in public and in private. This is my ultimate desire. I'm getting older. I don't know if you notice, but I'm getting older. I'm slowing down some. And I think about the end. And I don't know how much time I have left. But my constant prayer is, God, please help me finish strong. I want to finish strong. I want it to be said, if it could be said in truth, on my appetite, on my grave marker, he finished strong. But if I am able to do that, then I need more time here before heaven because I'm behind schedule. Sometimes I'm not doing all that I could be doing. Just this past Sunday, we witnessed a modern male counterpart to this Mary. David Ring was born dead. That condition deprived his brain of oxygen and as a result he has suffered from cerebral palsy his entire life. And his condition has worsened. But that hasn't prevented him from doing what he could. He has spoken to 8,000 plus churches, civic groups, corporate events, schools and prisons. He has almost 5 million frequent flyer miles. Most people don't understand how serious his disabilities are. David doesn't eat in public. It's embarrassing. He shakes so severely that holding a fork and putting food on that fork and getting it to his mouth is 
a laborious task. It's difficult and food falls off the fork and spoon and he's embarrassed. So he eats in private and we should respect that. And he shakes violently. Um, he was so exhausted after the weekend. He asked me, he said, I know I'm scheduled to go back tomorrow. And, but he said, can I stay one more day? I said, yes. He literally he slept all day Monday. And I brought him back to the airport Tuesday morning. You know, he's just six months from turning 70. And most men his age, and probably most all men in his disabled condition, would retire and exist on Social Security and disability benefits. But not David. I asked him how long he intended to do what he's doing. He said, until I can't. He's determined to do what he could, as Mary did, until he can't. A practical example of that, I heard from a pastor of a large church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's deceased now. He'd been scheduled to preach uh, at a small, small country church out in the hills of Kentucky. You know, back in the woods of Kentucky, I guess, where moonshine is still a thing. And uh, he's back there, and he arrived at the small country church, white wood frame building. We've all seen them. And he stepped inside, and just inside the door, there was a man sitting there in a chair, and he had a big stick in his hand. Thought that was unusual. Uh, he introduced himself. The two men spoke and for a minute, and uh, this pastor said it was apparent to me that he probably had a, a slight mental disadvantage. He was an educable, slow person that was apparent. Uh, but he said he was so nice, and uh, he said, well, what, what do you do in this church? He said, uh, preacher, I'm a, I'm a dog keeper outer. He'd never heard that before. That was a new job title he did not know about. He said, what do you mean? He said, these, these here hills are full of dogs. And uh, on hot Sundays in the summer, we have to leave the back door to the church open for air because it gets so hot in here. And it used to be dogs would just wander through the church. And he said, uh, I, I now wait for them dogs, and I got this stick here, and I want you to know, preacher, that ever since I got this here job for Jesus, there hadn't been one dog get inside this church. And I agree it would be far better to keep the dogs out of the church than let the church go to the dogs. And some of us smile, and, and some of us might even feel that his simple function is insignificant. No, it's not. There are no insignificant tasks for Jesus. Whatever we do for him matters to him, and it should matter to us. And this woman who gave Jesus all that she had, she emptied that container of perfume. She was doing what she could do. And Jesus commended her for that. Fanny Crosby, born 1820, died 1915. A familiar name, familiar name to some of us that are older. She was a poet, lyricist, musical composer, teacher, and rescue mission enthusiast. She authored some 9,000 hymns and gospel songs. Books that contained her songs have sold an estimated 100 million copies. Some of those songs we would recognize, such as, To God Be the Glory, Blessed Assurance, Rescue the perishing, 
near the cross and on and on and on. I was raised on Fanny Crosby's music. Fanny Crosby authored so much music that her publishers sometimes used different pseudonyms, meaning a pen name attached to the music so that people wouldn't realize she had created so much music. At six weeks of age, Crosby caught a cold and developed an inflammation of the eyes. A man that pretended to be a doctor advertised himself as one prescribed that hot mustard packs be applied to her eyes. It cured the illness, but she was left completely blind. That doctor was revealed to be a quack, but he was never found, never prosecuted. At that time, she felt that solution had damaged her optic nerves and blinded her, but modern medical professionals now believe her blindness was probably congenital, that she was probably born blind, but as a newborn, her parents didn't recognize that she was unable to see. At six months of age, her father died. Her mother had to work long hours as a maid, so it was her Christian grandmother that mostly raised her. As a child, and being blind, listen to this, Fanny Crosby memorized sometimes five entire chapters of the Bible each week. She could literally recite from memory all five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Verbatim, word for word. She could recite most of the Psalms. She could recite the Proverbs. And she could recite all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. She penned her first poem to be set to music at age eight. It read, Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Don't you wish you had her attitude? She was buried at Mountain Grove Cemetery in Bridgeport, Connecticut. You can go there now. A very small tombstone was erected above her grave. And on that tombstone it reads, She has done what she could. Fanny J. Crosby. People, that's, got, that's what God requires from us. Let's give it to him. Let's bow our heads, would we? Father, there's much to learn from this woman and the Gospels that anointed Jesus with this precious oil and perfume. We don't know anything about her much except that she loved Jesus and she wanted to demonstrate that love toward him in doing what she did. And I pray that her example will be an inspiration to us. Not to try to do what someone else is doing, but to do what we can do and to be honest with ourselves about we, what we could do because we so underestimate sometimes what we could be doing and we're not. And we make excuses and none of them are acceptable to you. So I pray, God, that we will interrogate ourselves even before communion and just really evaluate ourselves and say, am I doing what I could for the Lord? And if we're not, make a commitment in your heart to change that and to do so. Bless this time of communion, I pray. And um, I pray it'll be a blessing to everyone that came.
In Jesus' name, amen.